Welcome to the show. We have a very exciting guest this week. We do. It's our pleasure to introduce you to a wonderful new artist. She is one of my best friends in the whole world. She's an incredible songwriter. She has been compared to the likes of Alison Krauss, Leanne Womack, Dolly Parton. She's incredible. You're going to love her. Let's say hello to Callie McCullough. Hi, Kelly. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Doing good. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm just sipping a nice cup of tea, you know, <laughs> on my couch. Uh, so I'm having a great day. It is, uh, it's 16 and sunny for a change, so I'm happy about that. That's Boom. nice. How's Nashville? Yeah. You're, the, you're the first artist that we've talked to that's actually living in Nashville right now uh, after the tornado. So how are things down there? It has been an absolute roller coaster. Uh, so... Last Tuesday, we were supposed to do this interview a week ago, and that was the morning. I got a phone call about 5 a.m. Uh, people being like, are you alive? What's going on? Why are you calling me? I'm sleeping. Well, turn on the news, and about a quarter of the city is absolutely just devastated uh, by an F3 tornado um, that had moved outside of town and become an F4 and really devastated Cookville, Tennessee as well. So. I had gone to bed, tornado sirens were on, woke up and realized what had happened. Um, so we were very fortunate, um, and I'm grateful, but at the same time, I feel a little bit guilty that our part of town, so our house, completely safe and sound, you know, didn't didn't even knock over a lawn chair. Um, but not too far from here, um, East Nashville, which is beloved part of the city and a lot of artistic folk and, you know, independent businesses and wonderful music venues uh, in shambles over there. People are losing their houses. So it's completely heartbreaking. Most of the town stopped for about a week and everybody just went out and started picking up branches and helping clean up and donating water and food. And I've never, ever in my life uh, seen a disaster this bad. And I've also never seen a community come together this quickly. So on one side, absolute tragedy. On the other side, Nashville is incredible. Well, that's the um, so, wonderful thing about the, the the people of Nashville. They just rally together and do what they have to do, right? That's one of the magical things about this place. I think if you realize that most people that live here uh, haven't been here for generations. They don't have any family here. They've all moved here chasing one dream or the other. Um, so we're already like a family down here. We've already made our friends our family. So people really pull together here. Um, and I guess now we see why they call it volunteer state because we've actually had so many volunteers that they've had to start sending them home, which is pretty incredible. But definitely it's going to be a long road around here. It's going to be months and months uh, helping everybody and everything get back on its feet. So it's been tough. But, you know, we're doing OK and we're, we're grateful. You touched on something interesting that uh, the people that move to Nashville become a family. And and even though I spend most of my time up here now, I totally relate to that. I, I consider you guys uh, your family. I mean, there's no other way to put it. And so when the news. Yeah, you're like our weird uncle that we love. <laughs> Thanks, Callie. <laughs> like, I think because, no, like, because Scotty was, like, five years older than us, you know, we thought he was, like, so wise, so we started calling him Uncle Scotty. Jokes and it on just you. <laughs> uh, but, no, I, I, I found myself being up here and just wishing that I was down there with the other part of my family and able to help with the cleanup. And so, yeah, it is going to take months. For example, one of my friends that has played fiddle for me on some shows, 
um, his house got just trees and trees and trees and trees everywhere. So he made a Facebook post being like, hey, we're cleaning this up tomorrow. And like 40 people showed up and it turned into a lumberjack party. And we had a great time. But, you know, just going to individual houses and helping, especially elderly people um, that maybe don't have as many people around that are young and able-bodied. But we are getting through it as a community and definitely any help that you can bring down we're excited to have that all right let's get down to uh why we're actually having this conversation and that's your music you have been described as delicately modern warmly classic enchanting timeless i mean those are the adjectives i think that that an artist dreams of i know the journey that you've been on over the last few years what's it like to actually finally have those descriptors beside your name? Well, it's actually a bit of a trip because I have spent uh, a lot of the last few years being told that I am dated and disingenuous and that uh, the music I make is not going to sell and that there's no audience for traditional music anymore. So if I'm being honest, it feels pretty good to have a, to have it come full circle and come out the other side. Uh, You know, when people start to say nice things about you, you're like, really? somebody likes this right i was just doing it because i thought it was good i was gonna do it anyway but i thought i was gonna be broke forever well let's be real we're still broke but but at least we have the adjectives now (laughs) We're, we're, we're still broke we're just like minorly less broke like my car runs now which i'm really happy about but but yeah no it it's really i think this album that is coming out on march 27th has been a couple years in the making. And part of that was because I was so broke. <laughs> and part of that was the fact that we decided to make a record not in the Nashville factory way, but to really take our time and let each song shine and really you know, dive deep in the process of making an album, make it artistic, make it unique. Um, and some of them we built from scratch, from the ground up. And some of them we were able to track with members of the Time Jumpers and members of Union Station, which is a concept that uh, you know quite a lot about because Scotty and our my producer, Dustin Olian, the three of us were the best of friends. And we kind of dreamed up the idea for this record together and sat down, made a list of some of our biggest musical heroes and thought, well, why don't we call them all up? see if they'll come make this album. And they all said yes, um, which was pretty incredible. Some of those sessions are just flabbergasting, the playing on those. And also some of these songs were kind of given the the really intimate, vulnerable, built-from-the-ground-up treatment. And to me, those songs are really, really special. So I think it just takes a long time to, uh, for me, took a long time to pull it all together. So after two and a half years, um, it's pretty freeing, to be honest because I feel like I've just been in this chapter for a long time and I'm excited about this music, but I'm, I'm more so pretty floored that people like it. I think I was just going down my little artistic rabbit hole being like, I think this is good. I don't know if it will ever sell, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, so to have it be well-received, is really amazing. It's pretty cool, Callie. You've, you've had uh, After Midnight out only for a couple of weeks and you're already at just over 22,000 spins on Spotify. So for, for someone who, who is chasing down that type of music purely for the art, uh, what's it like to have it that well-received so early on? It's incredible, and I think 
I, I would just like to clarify and say I'm not on like some artistic purist tirade. I want people to like this music. It's to me it's 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 important and it's special and it's musical and it and these songs mean something. They're my stories. Um so I get like I'm I'm thrilled that people love the music and that's the messages that people are sending me, that they're connecting with it, that it makes them feel something, that it means something to them. I just was prepared for the possibility that nobody would care. <laughs> so just just to clarify, I was prepared that nobody would care. Um, but the fact that people, to me, it's about connection. It's this is my truth. This is who I am. This is my heart on my sleeve. And you're getting hundreds of messages back every day being like, wow, this song, I get it. This story, I felt this way too. And so, I mean, that's the reason we make music is to to put something beautiful into the world and and that it would touch people in some way. You came by it, honestly. Your mom is, uh, she was the 1985 CCMA Rising Star winner. So you, you are second generation, legit Canadian talent. So what's it like coming up in, in small town Ontario as, uh, as the music kid? I wouldn't even say I grew up in a town. I grew up basically in a cornfield. Uh, it was about 30 minutes to the next convenience store. I think in a lot of ways, I was so fortunate because I had this musical family, both of my parents, super talented, actually third generation. My grandparents were very musical as well and actually had started my parents into their musical journey. Um, so I had that community of musicians around me, but everybody was about 30 to 40 to 50 years older than me. So I was the only person I knew that did what I did. And it was weird when you went to school. Um, nobody... Everybody, and this is pre-country music being cool, by the way. This is pop radio, pre-Taylor Swift, playing guitar is not cool, and country music is not cool. It was something that I pretty much kept to myself uh, until I was about 14, 15. So it was a little bit isolating uh, in school. Uh, everybody wants to play sports and all of that stuff. So that, you know, I think it is tough. And that's one of the reasons that when you come to Nashville, you're like, wow, everybody understands me. Um, and I think I know you felt that too. But at the same time, you know, you have a lot of space uh, in that lifestyle. And, you know, pre-social media, you know, you're spending your hours and hours in your room just deep diving into albums and learning those guitar parts and singing, singing those runs. Um, so, there's something about, you know, the time and the space and the isolation is probably what drove me into so much of a deep dive into, you know, the traditional country music and the folk music and the bluegrass music that I love. Uh, so you actually um, joined a duo with your mom when you were 16 years old. Tell us a little bit about that. So what had happened is that my family's very musical, always jam sessions and get togethers and my parents were out playing shows. We had played um, somewhat of a garden party hosted by some hippie friends of my parents. Um, it was an annual thing we went to every year. And they said, well, why don't you sing a song with your mom? And so I'd gotten up, and we just kind of faked our way through uh, a John Prine tune. And then we looked at each other, and we we're like, wow, this sounds really good. Uh, there was something about the blend of our voices that was pretty interesting. And at the end of that song, somebody had offered us a gig for the next week. So we thought, oh, well, I guess we better you know, put together a one-hour show. And it kind of spiraled from there. We ended up making two albums. We toured all over North America. I got to go to Europe once. And and it was really great. You know, we traveled for a long time together and 
a lot of weekend shows and some festivals and fairs and all that stuff. And I got to kind of learn about, you know, some of the slugging at gigs and the little bit of safety net. Um, you know, I was playing in bars by the time I was 16. Uh, and, and I loved it and it was great. But, um, the last year and a half is when I really started to, uh, feel the pulls that want to do things on my own terms and really was feeling pulled towards Nashville and wanting to dive deeper into writing. And, you know, at some point, I think a lot of teenagers break away from their parents. They want their independence. That was me around 22. So that's when, uh, you know, personally it got a little bit tough and, it was one of those bittersweet things where we both knew I had to go off on my own, but really we had a great time and I'm really, I'm really grateful for it. I mean, I couldn't tour with my mom, so kudos to you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we really, you know, my mom is cool. Like she'd been on the road for years. My mom was not a naggy mom. My mom was pretty awesome. So I'm grateful for those years for sure. So what was it like when you moved from, you know, your small town in uh, Southern Ontario, Canada to Nashville? Well, I had been coming back and forth. My parents were like adamant that I should go to college. Um, So I went to the University of Guelph and my first semester in, I was like, listen, guys, I don't want to be here. I know I want to make music full time. So here's the compromise. We're spe- I'm spending the whole summer in Nashville or I'm dropping out. Like <laughs> these are the choices. So my mom and I started coming back and forth here uh, for many years. And we had made an album down here. When I actually came, you know, chose that I was going to make the move, I already knew quite a few people from all of my trips. And was actually my mom and I were touring out in California and we were working with an agent out there. And at the end of that tour, I said, okay, I want to go to Nashville. It's time. So I had actually bought a station wagon and just put all my stuff in it and basically drove across from California and hung out in LA for a week, hung out in Austin for a week or two. And by the time I got to Nashville, my car had broken down on the way, the one I had just bought. I'd saved $3,000. I paid $2,000 for car repair, $500 for my first month's rent, a lot of groceries and thought, okay, I have no money. So this is really going to have to work out and fast. I'm going to need to go get a gig. Um, And so that's how I, you know, I I just got here with not really any plan, a few friends and just made it happen. So I don't necessarily recommend doing it that way. (laughs) Um, It was pretty hard. Yeah, but it It, makes for good stories. (laughs) You know, it was straight up stupid. I wouldn't do it that way again, but I'm glad that I did it when I did. So what were the first few years in Nashville like for you? The first year, the first year I was really just kind of doing whatever I could to pay the rent um, and was had to go back and forth to Canada a bit uh, just to get all the papers in order immigration-wise. Um, so that next year is actually when things started to really take off for me. And actually, it's pretty interesting. I can trace a lot of things back to one night at 3rd and Lindsley uh, in March of five years ago. I went to Third and Lindsley with a friend of mine was visiting um, from Ontario and he was meeting a big crew of Canadians. And that crew was David Kalmuski, Tennille Towns, Raquel Cole. Um, so I met all of them and you and I had met one week earlier at 12th and Porter and you came in with your friend who had just moved to town, Dustin Olean. So that was the night the three of us met, and the three of us went on to become best friends, co-write songs, and make an album together. So I can really, it's these like little key moments where you start to meet people and it just clicks. And that's what the journey of Nashville is. It's finding your people. 
Um, so basically at that point is when I started to write with people that were understanding me um, and start to see see some momentum and some direction of where this was all going. So the first year was kind of chaos. And then by the next year, it started to all make a little bit more sense, but it was hard. I was broke. You're not allowed to go get a job as a Canadian musician in Nashville. So you have to make it playing for tips on Broadway. And I was too proud to call home and ask my parents for money. I was always having a car problem, but I was happier than I'd ever been. Okay, so let's fast forward then uh, just a little bit. Um, I want to talk for a minute about your experience with the offer from Alabama. So that same year, I was working back and forth with a producer based in Alabama uh, in Muscle Shoals, which is, again, another great music hub. I'm not going to use any names, but basically this is the record deal that almost was. Um, It was me working with a producer who I thought saw my vision. I had basically said, if Alison Krauss and James Taylor had a love child, what would it sound like? That's what my record needs to sound like, because I think that's who I am. And so working back and forth, writing songs, going back and forth, making trips, and, you know, having these record deals basically on the table, having, you know, management basically sitting there in the palm of your hand ready for the taking. And it all fell apart uh, because of creative differences. And basically what happened is they started sending me songs that were like, okay, this is what, you know, this is the first song that's going to go on the album. And, and these are the next two songs you're going to cut. And they were nothing that we had talked about. It was very pop country. It was one of the lines was every girl wants a night like this, my daddy's barn and my very first kiss. And I was sitting there, you know, on the floor of my house being like, am I going to let this whole thing fall apart because I don't believe in these songs. Am I going to turn my back and shut the door on this opportunity, uh, which is everything I've been dreaming of for a long time because of one or two songs? I thought, yeah, I think I am. (laughs) I think I'm going to say no to this because it feels all wrong. Uh, And you know quite a lot about that because you were there for it uh, for a lot of those trips and you know, in that time period, writing songs for that album, you and I were writing songs towards that album and writing what they wanted us to write, which was things that would fit in the country radio mold, which, you know, country music has changed its format a lot. And the way the format is now on radio, is just not what I resonate with as an artist. It's just musically for me, it just doesn't fit. And so trying to fit in that box a little bit, and I think we all come to Nashville and go, oh, I'm going to try and do it the Nashville way because it must be the right way. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to do what the system wants me to do because that's how people become stars. And I almost had to come right up against it to be like, no, this isn't for me. And that whole journey, plus the car breaking down and the playing for tips and all of those things is what we wrote uh, a song on this album about. And it's a song called three quarter time. And you know it well because you wrote a part of it. <laughs> you got to tell us about the tip jug. Right. So there's there's a couple key lines in the song. The whole song is about my love of, of slow songs and ballads and broken hearts and about playing for tips and about loving, you know, more traditional country music, uh, which has been really phased out in Nashville. One of the lines is uh, they gave me their songs and a piece of me died, which is exactly what happened when this deal fell apart. And the other line is, uh, I was playing downtown. I turned over the tip jug 
it outrolls a nickel and four pennies. So nine cents, not a dime, but nine cents. <laughs> and at that point, we got the line, they pay me in whiskey, but I ain't made a dime from singing old sad songs in three-quarter time. Wow. Yeah, I love that. I think that's just so indicative of your story. And, and um, I mean, the fact that you stuck to your guns and made the record that you wanted to make is is commendable. So congratulations on that. And, of course, with the release of the After Midnight single, uh, the American Songwriter feature was, was pretty fantastic. How did that make you feel? I mean, to me, being written up in American Songwriter at all is incredible. Um, because I think they really push some great music and they're, you know, an institution uh, in the American music industry and especially for songwriters. So to me, that was a really big thrill uh, just in itself. But reading what they had to say was particularly special. I had mentioned earlier, um, I kept submitting music uh, for grant funding in Canada um, and they sent it back saying that it was dated and disingenuous and would never sell and denied the funding and a year later american songwriter called it timeless and classic and you know engaging and heartfelt (laughs) and so it was kind of a good moment for me while i was drinking my morning coffee i gotta say no kidding you know kelly woman to woman i just want to uh ask you a question about women in country music because of course we have so many legends in country music we've got you know the dolly partons the trisha yearwoods we've got the leanne womacks we've got all of these amazing women and where do you see the future for country music for women you're right it's it's kind of a tough time i mean there are so many incredible women in the music business that have really paved the way for all of us and i think obviously we all know at country radio there's a big problem with women not getting airplay um for me my music is probably not going to get played on country radio but you know, I grew up in the institution of country music, so it's very near and dear to my heart. And a lot of my favorite music coming out of Nashville is, you know, country music coming out of Nashville is by women. Um, but I will say the women are getting the critical acclaim and the women are getting the awards. CMT is really taking a good step in making sure they play female artists videos. It's tough. I think radio needs to step up and get on board because in country music, radio is still the main thing that breaks an artist. Um, but I would just say that, you know, there's so many incredible female artists coming out of Nashville and otherwise, um, Ashley McBride, I think is incredible to Neil town, to Neil art. Um, there's so many great new artists, uh, that people can check out. And I also think that, you know, if you are a true music fan and you want to support people, you know, you can turn off that radio and you can turn on Spotify and, and you can go seek out good music uh, anywhere that you can find it because it's all out there on the internet now. And just if you love an artist, you have to buy their music. Um, but and, and what that's is really... it? What is it about the lack of of female uh, country artists on the radio right now? Why why is this happening? Well, it, it's somewhat of a Leslie Fram that CMT talks about it. She calls it Tomato Gate, where a specific uh, programmer said, you know, women. Their songs are the tomatoes in our salad, not the lettuce. And that's what started it. And it just spiraled, I think, you know, where you weren't hearing as many female artists on country radio. First of all, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear 10 guy songs in a row. I also prefer to hear not just 10 female songs in a row, but a good mix. And I think it's just, 
getting that balance back because women listen to the radio just like men listen to the radio. We want a balance of those songs and those stories and those voices. We want to hear from both sides of the fence. Mm. Um, and there's there's so much great music. You, we want to hear it all. And I grew up listening to country radio was my go-to, and I drove for hours and hours all over North America. And when I turned on country radio, it felt like coming home, and I could hear Trisha Yearwood, Reba McIntyre, Pam Tillis. I heard those songs and those stories and those voices, and they molded me. Uh, into not just the artist, but as a woman um, growing up. And I think young girls need that, and we need to get that back. 100%. Just saying, maybe it was Memphis. Great tune. I <laughs> love it. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm a huge Pam Tillis nurse. Me too. So, yeah, like, I mean, nobody really understands how it could possibly take so long to solve the problem. Just start playing the music. Yeah. That's all there is to it. Just play it. Exactly. When I first got into uh, country music, I remember uh, sitting down because I, I do have a radio background. I am in radio. But I remember listening to Jeannie C. Riley, Harper Valley PTA. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, man, uh-huh. she is so mouthy <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in all the good ways. And we just, you know, more of that, please. Let's just get more of that. So I really appreciate that uh, you are a woman in country music and you're singing your songs that matter to you. Well, thank you. And I think that's just it is that any artist, male or female, if they're singing a story that is near and dear to their heart, something that matters, something of substance. And by the way, fun matters too. Like fun is a valid emotion. You know, I'm not saying the whole world has to be serious, but you know, songs and stories that matter. And I think that generationally we're, we're in an interesting time music wise because attention spans are so much shorter, you know, like it's like 30 seconds. And if you don't grab them, it's next story. So music in general, like it evolves and, and, and the times evolve, but you know, music used to have the power to, to push and lead a generation, mm-hmm. you know, artists like Bob Dylan and to make these big political statements. And now in a lot of ways, the music we're hearing is more of a sad symptom of a generation. And I'm like a weird little person over here. I, I would say that I'm a nostalgist in a certain way, but I kind of long for, for that depth of stories and that that substance that that really was connecting with people and having something to say. So I don't know. I think we're at both a really exciting time uh, in the music business because anybody can release music and also a really tough time because it's hard to get paid as an artist these days. You know, we just got 20 over 22,000 streams on after midnight. Now, if that had been, 22,000 albums sold or 22,000 iTunes downloads, but 22,000 streams at like 0.01 of a cent. Like we're still broke over here, you know? (laughs) So it's interesting to be in the music business right now. Can I ask, and this is for you as well, Scotty, you and Callie collaborated on After Midnight. Can you talk a little bit about where that came from? So I go home every year. I've lived in Nashville for six years. Every year I go home for Christmas to Stratford, Ontario, and to Thornberry, Ontario, where all my family is. Um, And that particular year I was driving back and forth, and we got the blizzard of blizzards. And so I ended up staying an extra week in Stratford, it was just too crazy out there to embark on driving back to Nashville. I didn't have winter tires. So I called up Scotty, who was in Milverton, Ontario at the time. And I said, hey, Scotty, 
I'm gonna be at my dad's for three for three days. It's just my dad here, big house. Like, why don't you come over for a couple of days? We'll camp out and we'll write some songs. And he said, Yeah, okay, sure. So we were sitting up in uh, one of the sitting rooms, and I was like, Okay, I have this melody idea, and it needs to be like something kind of like cinematic, like something movie like. And I had just sung like the ooh was really all I had. And Scotty had recently watched the movie Midnight in Paris. And he was like, oh, I know I exactly yeah. where this is going. <laughs> uh, so we proceeded to open a bottle of tequila uh, and order about five pounds of chicken wings and go outside to my dad's studio uh, as to not keep him awake because it was the middle of the night. And uh, I'll let you pick it up here, Scotty. <laughs> I mean, that poor delivery driver, you know, it was a blizzard. It's and too crazy to go out, but let's order food <laughs> in and make the delivery What was driver her name? Drive. I think Jennifer must have been like 17 years old, the poor kid. But, oh, yeah. She was so tiny, and she was like, the order of chicken wings was like half as tall as her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, it was just, you know, when you had that little melody snippet, um, and, and what I sort of gleaned from uh, the soundtrack of uh, Midnight in Paris... It just all kind of clicked in my brain and it, you know, this little guitar part came out and then the rest of the song just really kind of fell out over the course of the next hour and a half and, and five pounds of chicken wings. It's still, it's, it's one of my favorite songs just because it's so simple. And then, you know, the, the magic that those guys brought to it in the studio, I think just really was, was wonderful. And, and to be part of a recording like that. And it does, it sounds like it should be in a movie. Yeah, I mean, I listen to that song and I feel like I'm walking beside the Seine in Paris, you know, at twilight, cafes and street musicians and it, you know, all of this beautiful architecture and the vibe is just, it's palpable when you listen to that song. You know, when you look at, at what we set out to try to accomplish and then you listen to the, the finished product, I think, um, mission accomplished you know i'm just i'm I, that's probably the recording that i'm i'm most proud of uh so far in my career for sure well i think really you played a big role in that recording um so scotty was the associate producer and the production coordinator on this album which meant he played a role as a producer and also one of his big jobs was to kind of cherry pick and collect by hand all of the musicians that we thought were right uh for this album to bring it to life and I think really you always connected with this song really heavily, you know, and it was kind of like our little snowstorm baby uh, <laughs> of a song. And and we, you know, you would always said, like, I have, I know how it needs to sound. It needs to sound like Midnight in Paris. And the funny part is I have now watched the movie Midnight in Paris like 10 times. I've never seen it the day we wrote the song. Right. Mm. Uh, but Scotty and I have like an interesting workflow. Uh, we've written so many songs together. And usually what it how it starts out is I will have, like, just like, I want to write a song, like I have this one line and I have this great melody idea. So I always kind of gravitate towards a melody. Uh, and Scotty will start, you know, putting out lyrics. And I like to, for some reason, I'll have to say no to them. Be like, no, I don't like that. And then 10 seconds later, I'm like, no, it's good. You're right. I like it. It's good now. <laughs> uh, so for some reason, I have to say no before I can say yes. But, uh which is, you know, I feel bad for you, Scotty. I'm bad to you sometimes, but that's um, okay. It keeps them on his toes. But it works. The system <laughs> works. You know, for for whatever reason. So, a lot of our a lot of our songs are 
or Scotty taking the lead on the lyrics and, and me kind of having those melody inspirations and, you know, and then messing around with it. But it's interesting, too, though, to me, because I find in my brain when I sit down to write a song and this is why I don't write by myself very much. I need that first spark. I need that first little nugget of a melody or the first line to get me going. And once I have a direction and I have a little starting point, then I can run with it. Um, so I think that's that's an interesting thing about the way that we work together is that you always seem to bring that little nugget that gets us started and then we're able to build a song from there. So it's it's pretty cool. I couldn't do what I do without you. So And it's interesting because you're writing with different people in different ways because sometimes I do come in with a whole set of lyrics. Um, but, uh, you know, if I, if one of us doesn't bring a nugget of an idea, we've been known to stare at the wall for 12 hours and just drink a lot of tequila. So <laughs> it's, it's always better to have an idea. And sometimes that's okay. Sometimes it is. <laughs> Every episode, we ask the artists that we speak to, to turn us on to something that they've recently discovered. It could be a Netflix series. It could be a book that you've discovered. Something I, that you've listened to uh, musically. It could be, I know you're a, a, a huge fan of Chloe. Clorox wipes. It could be Clorox wipes. <laughs> well, if I, I mean, I would love to turn y'all on to Clorox wipes, but with this whole coronavirus situation, they're all sold out in every store. So I think that one's dead in the water. Uh, I do like Clorox wipes. Uh, but um, I will say books. I have been reading a lot lately, um, and there's an author called Jenny Colgan, C-O-L-G-A-N. Uh, I've read about 12 of her books since November. And they're all these sweet little stories. And, like, I call it bimbo lit, you know, bimbo <laughs> literature. It's just, like, light, easy beach reading um, or, like, nestled up with a nice cup of tea on a cool, chilly evening. Uh, and literally every plot is the same. It's, like, girl in late 20s, early 30s becomes disenchanted with life in said big city. And they're set in different places all over the world and has falling out with either boyfriend or job or both, then has to go elsewhere to some Hicksville town, city, or country to seek little job opportunity, finds passion in life, gets together with new man, then has falling out with new man, he comes back and finds her, they live happily ever after. Sounds like a Hallmark um, movie. So they're all the same, <laughs> they're all the same, but the writing is really incredible. Like, linguistically, she uses such good words, you know, and, like, really interesting words, like vocabulary and dialect. Like, you know, she'll be like, her satchel, and she clambered atop, and she heard it clanking. And, like, just linguistically, they're so, in like, interesting to me, and it's very cute. So I have been binge-reading uh, bimbo-lit novels, but I love them. I think she's a fantastic author. So Jenny Colgan books and there's about 30 of them so if i get anybody onto it you've got lots and lots of reading before you run out beauty thanks for the uh uh the tip, the bimbo the tip. Yeah. <laughs> okay so we're gonna play uh, a little bit of a a game with you if you don't mind callie dig this, it this one is called would you rather would you rather would you rather eat an onion or lick a toilet seat Eat an onion, obviously. <laughs> like, can I cook it? No. Like you an know, apple. Like, does like an apple. answer I would rather eat, like, lick a toilet seat? That person is insane. You know what? We asked Amy's daughter that this afternoon, and she goes, well, how clean is the toilet seat? <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, that's fair. No. Question... I like onions. Yeah, so do I. Uh, question number two. Wash your hair with Jello or bathe in hot sauce? I'm going to have to go with the hot dogs just because, like, my hair is already, like, giant afro floof, and I just don't feel like I want to, like, make it any worse. Right. Yeah, but hot sauce, like... That is... Oh, bathe in hot sauce. I heard hot dog. No, hot food. sauce. Uh, I'm going to go back to the jello. There we jello go. Good girl. I mean, hot sauce is probably an excellent exfoliant. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to burn in places you don't want. Exactly. Okay. Swim in shark-infested waters or sleep in a chicken coop? Why are these all so awful? <laughs> go with the shark water because I'm like allergic to I don't know the smell of poo (laughs) (laughs) you you guys are awful Scotty looked at me with all of the weird faces because I I actually came up with those (laughs) Amy I don't know man her brain is just on a whole other level those are we're, we're going, okay, we got to come up with a bunch of would-you-rathers. And Amy's like, oh, how about, like, eat an onion or lick a toilet seat? I'm like, where did that come from? <laughs> you know? Good Lord. Listen, we need all colors to make the world go round, you know? And we leave no stone unturned here on the show. <laughs> I'd rather, would I rather not do any of those? Yes. 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 Yeah, there you go. Hey, Callie, thanks so much for spending some time with us this afternoon. We so appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, you delightful little idiot. (laughs) (laughs) If people haven't discovered you yet, where can they find you online? www.calliemccullough.com. Facebook and Instagram are going to be at CallieMCMusic. Uh, and then I've got the first three singles are out right now on Spotify, Apple Music, all the online stuff. And that album drops on March 27th. So you'll be able to get it online and physical copies off my website as well. Boom. Wonderful. So she is Callie MC Music on Facebook and Instagram. We are at the show on the go. Thanks for spending some time with us this week. We'll be back again next week with a, a whole new artist and a whole new batch of would-you-rathers. He's Scotty Kipfer. She's Amy Oust. Welcome to the show.